This podcast is made possible by the generosity of supporting members. Please visit dharmaocean.org to learn more about becoming a supporting member. You are listening to the Dharma Ocean Podcast. As a scholar of the history of religions, Reggie has a unique perspective on the way spirituality becomes codified by religious institutions. In this talk, Reggie discusses the conservative structures of conventional Buddhism and how the tradition is evolving within modern culture. This talk is taken from Reggie's upcoming online course called Awakening the Body, the Way of Somatic Meditation. To register for the course, please visit dharmaocean.org. Basically, over the last roughly 200 years, and especially in the last maybe 50 years, Western culture in particular leading the way and other cultures contributing has begun to find out a lot of things about human life and about human beings and about religious traditions, forms of spirituality. And they have found these things out by people digging into them. And we're talking now about scholars, people doing research, historians, historians of religion, psychologists, sociologists, it was interesting in the 70s, there was a, uh, and we still have it among many spiritual people, there was a kind of anti-intellectualism that was rampant in our culture. And in the 60s, and particularly 70s, when I was you know, trained in my field, which is history of religions, most young people felt that any kind of intellectual endeavor was a waste of time and that we should just, you know, we should drop acid, we should go to South America, we should just practice meditation. It was all very practical. There was a widespread belief that studying things and doing research wasn't really, didn't really contribute to the important things in human life, and particularly to the spiritual journey. And, you know, I certainly understand where everybody was coming from because it was a part of me that felt the same way. If you do uh, enter into, in those days, if you entered into graduate programs, uh, you did research in any of the sciences or the humanities, I had had a, a kind of air of disconnected professionalism. It was disconnected from your experience. For example, in my field, people might know that you meditated or you studied with a Tibetan teacher, but it was really considered not politically correct to mention it to anybody, even including your graduate school friends. And so there was a, there was a kind of anti, I would say anti-experiential bias on the side of the academic and scholarly world. And also there was a kind of anti-intellectualism on the part of people who were on the other side and really wanted a living form of spirituality. But as time has gone on, I think it's, uh, it's very, very clear 
that the discoveries in all kinds of fields in the modern world have created really important and necessary conditions for us to make the kind of somatic journey that we're making here. This is a very complicated topic, there's a lot to it, but I just want to give you a couple of examples. One of the things that we have benefited hugely from is the study of history, and particularly the study of the history of other cultures and the study of the history of religions. What we have learned and what I have learned, you know, because it's my field, is that almost all traditional religions, and Tibetan Buddhism fits in there, highly, highly conservative. And what I mean by that is that they take the point of view that uh, the tradition that they're teaching today has always existed in the same form in which they're delivering it to us. And that in the Buddhist thing, it goes back to the time of the Buddha. And therefore, I mean, it doesn't sound that noxious so far, but therefore we can't change anything because if we change anything, we're changing something that has always been there and is rooted in the Buddhist teaching as it was in the very beginning. Or, you know, going forward, it was rooted in the teaching of Padmasambhava in the middle of the 8th century. So therefore, it's a way of refusing to accept change and transformation. And the result is that anybody who engages in any kind of altering of the tradition, even if it's done in order to open up the depth of the tradition in a full and authentic way for a new generation, they're considered heretics in the the Christian world in the past, and in the Buddhist world they're considered that they broke their commitment to Buddhism. So this is a big problem, and what the study of history shows us is it completely disconfirms that point of view, that the way things are today is the way they've always been. Completely disconfirms it, which undermines the authority of present-day institutions to suppress change. Just a a brief example from Christianity. Uh, You know, for a long time in the Roman Catholic tradition, many people believed that the exclusion of women from the priesthood was rooted in the time of Jesus. And what we now know, based on the recovery of many, many, many texts from the very early days of Christianity, is that what the present New Testament represents is a very small, patriarchal, exclusionary selection of documents, and that at the same time that these documents were created, or even before, there are other texts where women have a completely different status, and Mary Magdalene, in some of them, comes off as Jesus' closest disciple. And yet, because we have not had that information, the Catholic Church has been able to suppress the role of women for 2,000 years. So that shows you how powerful a self-interested and especially patriarchal version of history, how powerful it can be 
in suppressing important trends that actually exist in the early days. So we have the same exact thing in Buddhism. We have a whole way of looking at Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan culture is very, very orthodox. It's very conservative in the past. And any change was regarded as heinous, horrible, evil. For example, one of the main arguing points is that histories of Tibetan culture that were written quite late, you know, 1500, 1600, which set in place the orthodoxy and the conservatism of Tibetan Buddhism claim that going back to the very beginning, Tibetan Buddhism was a certain kind of thing, no relationship to China, no relationship to anything except Indian things. That's one line. Now we find out there were you know, a lot of texts discovered in Dunhuang and that reflect way earlier than these histories. They come from the 8th century also from a, a library uh, that was uh, buried underground in, I think, Afghanistan and uh, somewhere in, in the general region. And we now know that these later histories are completely, you know, they're made up they're not true. And yet for the last 1,500 years, those histories, or the last thousand years, those histories have been used as a way to suppress any kind of change or transformation in Tibetan Buddhism. And people have been killed and monasteries have been sacked and, you know, libraries have been burned because the orthodoxy believed that its point of view was the only legitimate one. And sadly enough, we have the same situation today. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism, in the West, there are certain basic principles, which we don't need to go into now. It's a little bit too complicated. But one of the basic ones is that change and transformation, fundamental change and transformation of the inner spiritual tradition is not allowed. It's not permitted. It's not legitimate. And therefore, the Tibetan tradition we find is uh, tends to be really quite conservative and happening within a very traditional template. So this is a big problem. You know, one of the things about Chogyam Trungpa that was so interesting was that he didn't he didn't go along with it, and he saw very clearly that in order for Buddhism to survive as a living tradition. It had to connect with the living experience and understanding of modern people. It wasn't good enough to bring in templates from another time and another place. And his approach was the one I talked to you about from the very beginning and which really guides a Dharma Ocean and it, it guides this course and the, all of the somatic work that we teach. His approach was that from the very beginning, the Dharma has been about one thing and one thing only, which is opening up the full range and the full depths of human experience so that people can change and people can fulfill the life that's in them. That's not, that language is not a traditional Buddhist language. It's not a traditional Tibetan language. And he suffered very, very greatly for his willingness 
you know, he's not really innovating at all. I mean, what he said was, I am not innovating. I am not changing the Dharma. The Dharma itself has become rigidified and dead in Tibet largely. And what I'm doing is I am looking for a way so that the Dharma, which is, you know, Dharma means the, the fundamental reality of human life. Interesting. Uh, it's not, you know, Dharma doesn't ultimately refer to texts or traditions or rules and regulations or institutions or any of that kind of thing. Dharma fundamentally means what is the underlying force and foundation of our life, which is our own human experience. What he's saying is, I want to find a way to reconnect people in my own tradition, in my own culture, the Tibetans uh, who had lost, you know, largely lost sight of this. And I want to help uh, new people find that underlying spiritual force, which is what the Vajrayana is about and is what all these practices were really designed for in the first place. To download more of Reggie's teachings, find out about upcoming retreats, and to explore a variety of audio listening guides to assist you on your spiritual journey, please visit dharmaocean.org. Our music is by Jeff Beale and Nawang Ketchog from the album Tibet, Cry of the Snow Lion.